a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this episode, we're talking about Hong Kong and China's, obviously, ownership over Hong Kong. And it's for a very important reason. That's because it's been the headline news around the world for quite a few weeks now. Uh, Huge record numbers of protests we haven't seen in decades there, Keith. What's this all about? Yeah, so back in 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China, but wasn't given by the British back directly to China. The British negotiated a treaty which will run for 50 years. So Hong Kong is a special administrative region. So the full name really is Hong Kong SAR. So uh, there was this 50-year transition period mapped out. Um, The assumption being, look, we just don't know what China itself will be like in the year 2047. Um, Let's just see, take things very slowly and let the people in Hong Kong gradually become accustomed to being ruled by China. And who knows, China itself may change. From a political science point of view, we all got China wrong, or so far anyway. So the general idea is that the military or a communist party can run a poor peasant society. But when you become middle class and when the economy moves from just farming to also including manufacturing and the service sector, So individuals can think for themselves because they're no longer worried about where their next meal is going to come from because they're earning a good good degree of money. And so when you look elsewhere in Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, all those countries which used to be fascist dictatorships are now flourishing democracies. And so back in the 1980s when Mrs Thatcher started her negotiations with Hong Kong, over Hong Kong, with, with negotiations with China, there was a presumption that as China was beginning to get richer, then it would become much more liberal, more of a democracy. And so, in a sense, by going for 50 years from 1997, which was the handover to China, and then add another 50 years onto that, who knows what China itself will be like by 2047. And the implication is that it might well be a flourishing democracy, much as these other countries have gone down that route. So... Britain then um, left in 1997. There are certain matters which the British had um, excluded from the treaty, and one of them was the issue of extradition. In other words, that China cannot take somebody out of Hong Kong to put them on trial in China. The reason was quite simple, because obviously um, in Hong Kong you have a British rule of law. In China there is no rule of law. And they'll get slaughtered. Exactly. <laughs> And the conviction rate is 99%. So the British decided explicitly not to have an extradition treaty between Hong Kong and China. And that has ticked over. And the earlier Chinese leaders have moved very slowly on Hong Kong. But President Xi in recent years is becoming more and more ambitious in a number of ways. We're seeing it in the South China Sea dispute over maritime rights, etc., uh, his movement into Africa. So President Xi is a man with a mission, and obviously he's got in mind to get tighter control over Hong Kong. Another factor here is that if you go back to the early 90s, Hong Kong was responsible for about 20% 
of mainland China's exports. You know, it was the gateway into China. But what we've now seen is that China has developed its own direct exports to the rest of the world. You don't need to go through Hong Kong to be able to sell your goods to the world. So Hong Kong is now down to about 2 or 3% of, of the Chinese export market. So it's really not that economically significant. Why does China care so much about Hong Kong? Oh, it's a loss of face issue. You know, in the same way that I have colleagues who look at Australia and say, why on earth do you guys panic over asylum seekers arriving by boat in Western Australia? And I then have to explain the domestic politics. Remember, all foreign policy is local. And the same way with China, that you've got the Chinese uh, who take the view Hong Kong is part of China. It was stolen during the warlord period. How long ago was that? So that was about 150 years ago. So if you go back 300 years... China was a major player in the global economy. About a third of global uh, national product came out of China. So China was a major economic player. Uh, and then it fell into chaos. And that was the warlord period. And the foreigners were able to exploit the chaos in China. Uh, the Russians got hold of um, part of northern China, which, which they still haven't handed back. Later on, the Japanese, of course, uh, moved into China. Um, the British had got Hong Kong. And so for the Chinese, as part of this idea, going back to the fact that China has now stood up, this is Chairman Mao's phrase on his first big speech at Tiananmen Square 70 years ago, China has stood up. And so part of that standing up and rediscovering China's traditional role in the world has to be reclaiming all those peripheral territories that China lost when it was falling into chaos for about 300 years. What I don't understand is it's like the more, it's like having a big house with lots of lawn, right, or lots of different areas to it Then you have to look after. Why do they want all this? Why does China want all these territories? You're being far too rational, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's what I mean. I find it quite extraordinary, the whole thing. Well, you know, they've got Macau back from the Portuguese. They just see it as the reunification of the motherland. But do the people in these... But but that's the thing. There's so much resistance from these other places that why bother? Well, they they bother because uh, President Xi does not want to be known as the man who lost Hong Kong. Mm, That's right. why he's putting so much effort into it. Although what I what I think has gone wrong for him is he's overplayed his hand. He has been far too um, ambitious and impatient. Remember, he's got until 2047 and he's president for life. So it's not as though he wants to get everything done by the end of his presidential term. He's now elected for life. He's not in a rush. He's not. In, he shouldn't be in a rush, but he has been. So what has happened is that Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive, the equivalent of a prime minister. And she's, she's the one that's copped all the... She's the one who's copped all the flag. So she's the chief executive. She's the one who's created this extradition treaty and is putting it through the equivalent of a Hong Kong parliament. And why did she do that, by the way? Well, that obviously pressure under pressure from, Beijing? from oh, yeah. Exactly. Under pressure from China. There was a, 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 an awful murder... Uh, and uh, I won't go into all the details. But oh, give us tra- some of the details because I've got you piqued my interest now. <laughs> um, uh, a guy murdered his girlfriend, hid the body in a case, all sorts of things. But the but the the turns on the fact they can't put the guy on trial for murder in Hong Kong because they couldn't get hold of the guy because there's no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and Taiwan, and so therefore 
Um, so he's Taiwanese but lives in Hong Kong. He's, that's right. So that's, well, the, well, so Carrie Lam has used that incident as a way of saying, well, we need an extradition treaty to deal with the countries in this region. But the people in Hong Kong are saying, look, this is just a cover. No doubt the murder did take place. There's no doubt at all about that. But this is just a cover for the long-term ambition of being able to pick up in Hong Kong people who are critical of China and then moving them into China where they, they will then go and face long prison sentences. Yeah, right. So then what's that's transpired since? Because that was obviously it's been coming for a while and then we get up to 2 million people in the streets that's of Hong right. Kong. That's right. So you've had one weekend where they had about a million in the streets, following weekend 2 million in the streets. Um, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, has apologised a very, very humble, which again is not not part of the Chinese tradition. <laughs> you can imagine President Xi in Beijing, obviously in a real mess because, you know, it's his woman in Hong Kong who's let him down. Um, she has apologised, but the demands of the campaigners are that she resigns, not just apologise, she goes. So she hasn't gone? She hasn't gone and she intends to serve out the remaining three years of her term in office. Right, so she's not resigning. She's apologised, but she's not resigning. Um, there's been no apology yet for the behaviour of the police. Or that is interesting that, that in the recent demonstration, the police were invisible and there was no violence. The previous week, there'd been awful violence, uh, including somebody falling to their death. But was, um, this time round, the police were simply not on the streets, and it was a very peaceful event with twice the number of demonstrators. So they want to get an apology out of the police for the behaviour, and they want the treaty itself not just to be suspended, which is what Carrie Lamb has said she will do, but they want the treaty to be totally scrapped and not, not ever to reappear, or at least until 2047. Although, of course, at 2047, there's no need for such a treaty as part of China. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. In this episode, we're talking about Hong Kong and explaining what's been going on over there because the last couple of weeks there has been huge amount of unrest. Up to 2 million people this particular week uh, have taken to the street, which is numbers you haven't seen for decades, Keith. When was the last time that they, that kind I of I don't num- think that you can, uh, you can actually. If you think there's only 7 million people, mm. so that's really just under a third of the entire population. I think by... Guinness Book of Records standards, you know, that's the sort of thing it's in. It's not just a Hong Kong phenomenon. It's it's something, you know, if you look at the demonstrations you have in Britain or the United States, you do not get a third of the country out on the streets. So China would have obviously looked at this, Beijing would have looked at this as a major issue, right? They would have looked at it behind closed doors as a major issue, but I can assure you the Chinese media ignored it. They did run one story claiming that the demonstrators were campaigning in favour of the extradition treaty, um, but that got ridiculed so much in the Western media that they've stopped running that. And now it's just a, a, a colleague of mine has returned from China. She had no idea there'd been problems in Hong Kong. So total media blackout. Remember the Chinese government controlled the internet, social media, etc. And so they were able to ensure that nobody in China... And that's uh, even through social media? Yeah. They control social media. But surely some things filter through. Well, not really. Well, not really. It's a bit like trying to find out what happened in Tiananmen Square. That is blocked if you're in China and you go looking for it. Oh, wow. Extraordinary, really. It is extraordinary, but it shows the control of the Chinese government. 
Uh, let's talk about the other territories just for a second because I know that Hong Kong is just one of quite a few. You said they've reclaimed Macau. When did they do that? Uh, they did that shortly after Hong Kong. So uh, we're looking at about, what, 20-odd years ago there for, for Macau, same sort of transition arrangement. Of course, Macau is interesting because it's um, got the highest standard of living in the world and its money comes out of gambling. Gambling is not allowed on the mainland. So if you're a rich Chinese person, you go into Macau. What's in Macau, though? Nothing. Casinos. That's it? That's it. So where is it ge- geographically? Quite close to, ge- geographically quite close to where Hong Kong is um, and created for the same reason. This time it's the Portuguese who wanted a trading post in, in China. China is a huge country. It's almost, well, it's about the size of Australia. So if you think about how big Australia is. So it's actually very difficult to occupy all of China. So what you you can do if you're an aggressive foreign power is that you nibble away at the periphery, at the edges. So as I say, the British got Hong Kong, the Chinese got territory, which I've actually been at. I had a, a Christmas up on the frontier. Where's the frontier? Next on to the Yellow River. No. Oh, ne- right. Yeah, but beyond Mongolia. So uh, the river is frozen. Uh, so I, it's theoretically possible to walk from China to the Soviet Union. You wouldn't want to do that. You'd get your head shot off, yeah. but you could walk across the river because the ice is so thick. You go across the river and you can walk into the adjoining country. Now, that land was stolen in the 1880s, 1890s, again at the time when China was in chaos. And the Soviets, or now Russians, are refusing to hand it back. So that's also another disputed territory. Wow. And then what about like the really quite high-profile ones, Tibet, Taiwan? Tibet I think we need to look at quite separately because that's a separate territory. Tibet at one time was controlling China. Which is, again, fascinating. <laughs> and we will have a whole thing on yeah, it, but we'll have... just very briefly. Very briefly. So Tibet is the far western part of China. It's part of what some people might call the Wild West. You've also got Xinjiang, which um, is a predominantly Islamic territory with the Kirkic people. And there's no big cities there or anything, is it? It's quite underdeveloped by China standards. Am I right or not? China, well, um, the, the areas may contain all sorts of rich minerals. And Tibet is on the roof of the world, right? Remember, the world has three poles, the North Pole, the South Pole, and the Himalayas, which includes a bit of Tibet. So when you look at where our water is stored, fresh water is stored, there are the three poles, North Pole, South Pole, and Tibet, and that that area, you know, northern India, Pakistan, etc. Um, so Tibet is certainly very significant. The Chinese have now just built a railway that will take you through to Tibet because what they want is to move the Han Chinese, that's the majority population inside China, they want to move the Han into Tibet so as to be able to say, look, most of the people here want to have Chinese rule because that's what they've done. It's um, what you see with Indonesia, with transmigration, that you move people into disputed areas where the Indonesians have moved um, Indonesian people from Java, etc., into West Papua. So if you say, well, look, why don't we have a vote to see how people feel? Well, the majority of voters by that time will be Chinese, not Tibetans. And then the other territory, of course, that is worth noting is, is Taiwan. So Taiwan um, uh, hosts the, um, it gets very confusing. We actually have two Chinas, although you can only recognise one at a time. 
<laughs> so you have the People's Republic of China, that's Chairman Mao's China, and the uh, previous rulers were the Nationalist Chinese who then fled at the time of the uh, Chairman Mao takeover 70 years ago, and they fled to Taiwan, uh, which is predominantly a Japanese colony, right? Remember the Japanese started to nibble away at China as well. One of their territories was Taiwan. So I went, I've been to Taiwan a few times, as well as, of course, mainland China, and you'll find a number of people of a certain age who are fluent in Japanese because the Japanese remained in control there until 1945. And then, of course, they lost World War II and that territory was confiscated and was then handed back to China. And then four years later, China fell apart and the nationalist government of the Kuomintang fled with all the national treasure to Taiwan. And so Taiwan is um, a separate country. As I say, the general ruling is that you can only recognise one or the other. You're not allowed to recognise both. There's only one China, so you have a choice. And so for many decades, Australia said the government of China is on Taiwan, which was a crazy thing, but we were following the American lead, right? Now, uh, because of the opening up of China by President Nixon and Henry Kissinger, uh, America now recognises mainland China, Beijing, as being the government of China and therefore has reduced its involvement with Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is recognised by a number of countries, including around the Pacific. And, the, of course, the Chinese are going around with their checkbook mm. trying to win friends and influence people and get some of those countries to stop their recognition of Taiwan and to recognise Beijing. And Hong Kong is significant in this context because even back in 1997, um, when I covered the handover, by the way, for four and a half hours, we were rated higher than Wimbledon on Channel 7. Even Media Watch, you know, the ABC programme? Yes. Congratulated Channel 7 because the ABC closed down its broadcasting and moved across to the BBC. So this is your little colonial broadcaster taking stuff directly (laughs) from the BBC in London, whereas Channel 7 gave the only Australian coverage of the handover. Wow. So part of that coverage back in 1997 was that the Chinese were going to use the peaceful absorption over a 50-year period of Hong Kong as a way of saying to Taiwan, look, you can rejoin the motherland. Look how well we're treating Hong Kong, which just like Taiwan is full of all these entrepreneurs, plenty of get up and go, etc. Taiwan sees itself as the green silicon chip of the Pacific. Green country and also a leader in information technology. And so if things went well with Hong Kong, it would be um, a, a guide, a reassurance to Taiwan that they too can join China. So as you can imagine, Taiwan is paying a lot of attention to what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. Because if they can see how brutally you get people treated in Hong Kong, you've got a lot of Taiwanese saying, well, look, we'd be better off trying to go on our own way Mm. and not be ruled from China. Because don't forget, a lot of people don't remember a time when they ruled from China. They were ruled by the Japanese. Because they're all bloody shared around, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the joys of geography and politics. Well explained. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.